Hello to all of you. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I am here to minister God's word as the oracles of God. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to allow the Spirit of God and to facilitate in every possible way that God's Spirit would speak through us what he would be saying to individuals and to the body of Christ. And that is what I seek to do. In regards to that, I seek God to lead me to a particular chapter each day of the week. And then I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour as well as make notes in that half hour. And then immediately thereafter, I preach with very little preparation, trusting the Holy Spirit to speak through me. Today I received Psalms chapter 24. And so I will read Psalms chapter 24 and then to be, then we'll begin to share from it. I should also mention right now that I did preach from this passage of Psalms 24 on June the 1st with a video message which is on my site at Love Realized. All you have to do is look down a bit towards where you will see John June the 1st. And it was that date that I preached on the same chapter. I really sometimes feel very helpless and weak and wonder how there could be anything possibly that I could preach from such a short, straightforward chapter. Well, let's first begin to read Psalms 24. A Psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. That word Selah simply means to pause and meditate upon what you've just read or um, had spoken to you. In this psalm, in verses 1 and 2, we see that King David in this worship psalm, is describing 
the Lord is the one that is the creator of this world, and obviously the implication is of all things. And he's acknowledging that God is the life source of all that there is in worship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and even the inhabitants that dwell in them. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. And then the psalm suddenly changes to ask a question. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And the transition between the understanding of verse 1 and 2 on a God being the life source of all things is pretty obviously that if we are to inherit everlasting life, abundance of life, then we must be able to ascend into the presence of God that is the source who created the world and all its fullness and this universe and all the things that are therein. There is the need to be able to ascend into the very presence of God because the very next statement is or who, the word or, implying that he's saying the same thing in a different way. Or who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord also, the word hill implies government. Whenever the scripture uses mountain or hill, it is speaking of a place of ascendancy and of authority. It is representative of government. Who shall ascend into the government of the Lord, the Almighty's one, the I am that I am, that governs this whole universe and isn't only the governor of this whole universe, but the very creator of it all. The awesomeness of that more than ever is something that we ought to sit back and meditate on by saying, Sila. When we consider the vastness of the universe that we are more aware of than any other generation. The world in itself is filled with such amazement and wonders as one considers the tremendous intricacy of life. Within every little cell of either a plant or any living thing or our own body, within every single cell there are little machines that are so complex that they are more complicated than building a spaceship today with the capability of not only flying and landing on another planet, but of reproducing itself on that planet and then spreading throughout the universe to repeat the same thing. And of course, man hasn't even reached that level of sophistication with modern spaceships. 
And that is found in a book called Dwaron's Black Box, which describes the amazing discoveries since the invention of the electron microscope, which basically renders evolution as really more of a fairy tale than something of reality when we look at all of these things that could not possibly be produced by some gradual transition of cells. Because the things that they find within the cells are very machine-like, more mechanical, even though they're very biological. For example, there is a little device that looks exactly like and functions exactly like the alternator in a car. It has magnets, it spins, and is the tail of the sperm that penetrates the egg to bring forth new life. It has those little magnets that cause the tail to spin that are exactly like an alternator. You can look all of these things up. If you just look under the video section on cells, you'll come across these things, these amazing discoveries. And yet we look at the universe and we see that our sun is a thousand times larger than the earth. And there are suns that are many thousands of times larger than our sun. And the light that travels seven times around the world in one second at that speed takes five years to get to the closest star, that is sun, similar to our sun in the universe. And yet we are in the Milky Way, which has billions of such stars, which is only one galaxy. And now they know there are literally billions of galaxies, each of those galaxies containing billions of stars that far outnumbers all the sand grains that would be upon the earth. And the Bible said by the Holy Spirit in Genesis that the stars are in multitude as the sand grains on the earth, on the seashore. And so we consider the greatness and the awesomeness of God that is beyond our little finite minds to comprehend. And so in that context of God's creation and being in awe of what reveals the majesty and the might and the power, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of the Almighty's one, we can actually come into the very presence of God. The one that is so great beyond our mind to even comprehend of what he's created. And it says in his word that he's humbled himself to behold the things that are in the heavens, let alone the earth. To consider the greatness of the Almighty's one, Yahweh, the I am that I am, is not possible with mere grasping of the intellect. It is amazing. If you go to my site at ultimatemeeting.com, you can watch videos of atheists that when they died, there was some area of openness in their heart to truth. So God 
had mercy on them when they died. Because this, there's two atheists there, they both died, and they experienced going to a place of terrible torment, of hell, that was very real. In fact, the one atheist, the first video there, he makes it very clear that when he came out of his body, it was way more real than this physical realm. He could see way more detail, way more color, and colors that don't even exist in this realm. And he could process thought just at an instant and be in one place very quickly and in another. But he experienced going to a place of eternal torment where people were tearing his body apart that were similar to him, that were atheists that denied God. And it seemed like he was there for ages upon ages upon ages, crying out to God. And he cries out and he makes a prayer of something he remembered in Sunday school and God has mercy upon him. and comes and brings him out of hell and shows him heaven. Now this one didn't describe all the details of the other atheist in the second video described of heaven. The second atheist that died was similar. He was like Paul the Apostle, Paul said he obtained mercy because what he did, he did ignorantly. Thinking he was doing God's service. He obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly. He wasn't willfully rebelling against truth. He was veiled in his heart and mind by those that had lied to him to believe something that was false. But in his heart of hearts, he was open to truth and to reality he had not chosen to sell his soul for some temporal self-glory by being in a hierarchical setting where he could be looked up to by others of the same religious persuasion. And in the case of this second video of the atheist at love, or pardon me, at ultimatemeaning.com, he said that when he was in heaven and he saw God before him, that the glory was unspeakable. There's nothing to put into words the radiation of love that he felt and the brightness and the power that was emanating from God. And he said his eyes were filled with incredible love. And out of his mouth, there was literally the creation of galaxies coming forth and worlds with such power and glory. It's amazing that someone like him would have obtained mercy and came back and be brought back to life after he died. Yet there are others that have had the truth plainly presented to them. But Christ says, that if we have the truth and we do not respond to the truth, then how great is the darkness in us. And these others that were Christians had unforgiveness in their heart toward others. And so this other person, when he was in this other dimension that is far more real than this one, saw even pastors that were in hell in eternal torment beyond comprehension, way worse than anything one could experience in this world, going on forever and ever because they held unforgiveness in their heart and refused to give people. Christ said, if you do not forgive those, neither will I forgive you. If we've really seen the greatness of God's mercy to forgive us, how can it be that we cannot show the same mercy to others?
The question is asked in the context of the awesomeness of God's creation and thus of the awesomeness of who God is. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord, which is the government of God, is a place of holiness because the very being of God is holy. And I want to explain this, for it is the very foundation of creation itself, the being of God. For God is the creator. He is the author and the finisher of all things and the author and the finisher of your faith. If you are someone that has been birthed anew into relationship with God. Out of the dark world of self that leads to bondage and emptiness and death. The government of God is established upon the holiness of God. And the holiness of God can be defined this way. It is the integrity of God's law. But first, we need to understand more clearly that the very being of God is love. And what love is, it says in 1 John, twice, God is love. And it uses the Greek word agape which is the highest form of love. And there is no greater definition of love than the one I'm about to give you that can possibly be defined. Nor is there anything that can be defined that could be possibly less than what I'm about to define. Or that could possibly be love in the kind of love that I'm about to define uh, that defines this love. So I will define it this way. First of all, I will say agape love is far more than just the feeling and the emotion of experiencing love. It has the understanding of the highest form and purest form of love, which can make a choice for the highest good independent of any feelings. In fact, this love, first of all, is totally free and self-originating in its choice. It is not receiving its influence or input like a robot from some outside source. It is totally free in its choice. It is totally self-originating and self-original in its choice and thus self-responsible. That is one aspect of this love. And the other aspect of this love is that this love always in God, chooses the highest, lasting good over any more immediate choice of love that would bring a more immediate gratification and fulfillment. Because even those good choices would have an element of corruption in them if they were not the highest, lasting good. God always chooses the highest, lasting good, which is on to the highest, lasting good, who is who God is. And it is always out of his good pleasure that he chooses that. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, it describes God as allowing all things to work together after the counsel of, after his will, according to his good pleasure. 
So love, how is it possible for love in God to always make the right choices, always choose the highest lasting good? It is because there is integrity, an absolute ultimate purity of integrity in these choices of the highest good or these or in the love of God. God's love has an absolute ultimate purity of integrity that as such is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, and deed that would be contrary to his being of love. And if God was anything less, there would be an element of corruption in his being that could not contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by such ultimate power in life or allowing that life to have corruption in it that would cause dissipation of ultimate power in life. There is no corruption in God. That is why it says that God, by the Apostle John, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no corruption in the being of God. The being of God is a total purity of love that can contain unlimited life and unlimited power in a creativity from that integrity of love that requires judgment that can be ever enlarging in the expression of love and creativity that goes on forever and ever without end. That is who God is in his holiness. And it is the very foundation of government that can go on forever without corruption because God requires judgment because his love is totally pure and clean. And that is the foundation from which springs forth creativity that is ultimately expressed and is only possible to be expressed from such a foundation, because only from such a foundation can there be creativity or expression of love and creativity that is without corruption. I am not here to go into great theological explanations, which I have got I could talk for hours on and or will be in a book that will be eventually coming out where the main theme is on the fear of God. But yes, God created us with free choice to have a likeness like his being of love in the sense that we're not robots. We also can freely choose. The problem is that when there is the potential because we have love, there is the potential to make choices that are in violation of the being of God's love, that are in rebellion against love. There's the potential of hell in the heart by virtue of creating beings with the capacity to become lovers of God individually and corporately as his corporate bride. I could go into great depth to explain this all here. What I am trying to point out 
is that because God created us beings with the potential of hell does not negate the fact that his creativity is totally without corruption. Because you see, we are the source of our own action. We are totally self-originating. Only as such can we have free choice. Can we be truly having the capacity to love and have a love that can have the potential to come into harmony and union with God's love. To come into an immunity against the potential of hell within our capacity of being to love. There's no time to go into and sidetrack on all of these things here. But I want to point out that God's being of love is ultimately manifested in his power to assure mercy. To assure mercy. to assure destiny to creation. And that can only be in the fact that though he will not tolerate from free will beings rebellion and will require judgment and that they are cut off from the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, as much as that is the case, there is the capacity within the being of God to be transcendent in his requirement of judgment with the power to assure destiny because of the power to assure mercy. Because his being has such a capacity that he could be a perfect atoning sacrifice to the absorb the judgment of his creation who is tempted indirectly, indirectly through the physical realm, not the angels who deliberately rebel directly against him, but who's tempted indirectly through the physical realm to provide to them forgiveness. There is within the being of God the power to assure forgiveness to those that choose to receive his provision of mercy, his perfect atoning sacrifice. And there is every indication from the time of Adam and Eve that there was the understanding. Clearly, it is very clear in the Old Testament that they acknowledge that God had the power to assure forgiveness upon repentance to receive his mercy, that he had the power to provide destiny and purpose to creation. And that obviously implied that he could only lie in God, for God would not forgive without requiring judgment. And since it was not within any natural creature to be a perfect substitute for sin, the implication is that it is in God. And so there are verses in the Old Testament that make this clear, such as one that says, well, 
What can I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my own children as a sacrifice or my own body? And the implication is, no, nothing is sufficient to atone for your soul. And the implication is that it requires a perfect atoning sacrifice that totally represents man's soul and spirit, not only his body. Yes, the innocent lambs were given as a living sacrifice, and when you laid hands on them, it was a symbol of your sin being transferred onto that innocent lamb or animal that God required before Christ came. That is why Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But it is very clear that they understood that that only cleansed the physical body, allowing God's presence to dwell with them, but not to be able to indwell their soul because their soul could not be cleansed, nor their spirit by an animal. It did not represent their being, nor could it be perfect in that area. And I could go in and talk a long time in this too, but I will not, I will forbear, or this would be a very long message. I will simply say this, that we all when Adam and Eve fell, have the same vibrations of disharmony against God come into us since we were born from Adam and Eve. And the whole human race today, including you as an individual, as it were, was in the first Adam that sinned against God. And so there's a tendency through the physical body and the physical psyche to bend towards rebellion, against the being of God's love. But God loved us so much that within his being from the very beginning, there was the capacity to come and be a perfect atoning sacrifice, to humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and absorb judgment upon himself, and yet still remain in total purity of faith with God without rebellion in receiving that judgment and absorb that judgment and swallow it up and conquer it and rise from the dead. And this is what happened in Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of God into the time and space realm. Oh, I love to describe the triunity of God. And again, many of my messages I do, but it would take so much time. I just want to point out here this reality. If God could not assure destiny to the, to the things that he created, it would imply that he had created a creation that was imperfect, which would, which would imply that God is imperfect. The evidence that God is ultimately perfect in his being of love with this holiness it is the foundation for everlasting government that can go on forever and ever is in the fact that his love is so pure that it can be transcended in a creative expression ultimately manifested in a love that could become a perfect atoning sacrifice for you so that you could repent and receive his mercy and become part of his corporate bride and enter the kingdom of heaven. That is such a wonderful, hopeful message. 
in a world that is filled with such hopelessness and people's lives. And it's the truth. It's reality. And it's highly substantiated by objective evidence, which I won't go into on the resurrection of Christ. Lawyers, many, a good number of lawyers have set out to write books trying to disprove the resurrection and in the process of investigating the evidence were converted. Lee Strobel is one of them. There are others. What I'm sharing here with you today is the good news. That God's loving kindness is better than life. It is the very container of life because his love is totally pure to the degree that he could love you so much. And his purpose is to bring forth a corporate bride. And so in this passage of scripture, it makes it clear that those that can ascend into the government of God, into the holy place with God, and know the experience of communion and intimacy and fellowship with God are those that have clean hands and a pure heart who have not lifted up their soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. The word of God makes it clear. It says... Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And there's another verse that says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. There's another verse that says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In Jonah. Jonah allowed himself to observe lying vanities, and as a result, he was swallowed by the whale and failed to fulfill his mission to preach to the city of Nineveh until he repented with inside that well. And by the way, this is no fairy tale. There's been many records of people being swallowed by whales and many days later that whale being caught and the person being found alive in the whale. This is a fact. I am not telling you a fairy tale when I tell you this. There are actual records of this being the case. Check it out yourself. In this passage of scripture, there needs to be an understanding of the utter importance of entering into a relationship with God. How do we enter into a place of holiness with God? Is it in our own sufficiency? No. People that think they can save themselves are trusting in themselves. Whatever you trust in, wherever you put your focus of trust is where you're putting your worth and your glory and your worship. So if you think that by keeping the Ten Commandments, that by doing some performance before God that's not coming from your heart out of love for God, that somehow God will accept you. You are deceived because what you are doing is trusting in yourself, which is a state of pride and of self-worship, of self-righteousness and independence from God. Those that believe in philosophical beliefs, some of them believe if you do certain types of meditation, you can refine your ego and get rid of your ego. But all you're doing is refining your ego 
beyond the comprehension of your mind so that you become depersonalized like it does zombie. There's always one hand that will be free when you try to crucify yourself. So how does one enter in to a place where they have, have a relationship where their lives are in conformity to the being of God's pure integrity of love? If it's not within our own sufficiency and strength, It starts by choosing to recognize God for who he is, not merely from the mind, but from the heart in the way that I've described. And I described two things about the being of God's love. First, the impurity of his love, the integrity of his love, which is his holiness, which is the defensive aspect of his love. This is represented as the negative symbol in mathematics. It also can represent a foundation because it's a straight line, it also can represent being cutting off all that is contrary to the perfection of God's being of love. And so man was cut off from God when Adam sinned and failed and Eve failed to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy in this, these two aspects of his being. First, the purity of his love, out of which springs his creativity in mercy. Only when there is such a recognition from the heart is there a perception from the heart that is a recognition of God as ultimately trustworthy. And that is the fear of God. It is a choice to recognize reality for what it is. God for who he is, for he is the very source of reality. Truth is defined in various dictionaries, is that which is real. And you look up reality and real, and it is defined as that which is everlasting, unchangeable, and indestructible. And only the government of God's being in this state of love that I'm describing can possibly be without corruption and be thus the very source of creation. When we recognize the greatness of God's mercy, which can only be recognized when we first recognize the holiness of God. And what does the holiness of God do when we really recognize that from our heart? It brings us to the place of utter awe where we realize that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not the source of our own salvation we are not the life source of the universe. We are not the reality center of the universe. There's only one, and that is God. And when we come to the place of humbling, when we come to that place of awe, I want to say that science and various top people that study the human brain have said that Half of the brain was created to comprehend law. Oh, and these are not people that believe as I believe. They don't know a relationship with God, and yet they discover that half of our brain was created to comprehend law. Oh, yes, we were created to find our wholeness and our fulfillment in 
God. And when we begin to just be still and humble ourselves before God and let all of our self-initiated pride and presumptive words just dissipate in the utter awe of who God is and be still and know that he is God and recognize our utter need of him and of his mercy. Then, that is the true fear of God. It is a choice to recognize God for who he is, first in his holiness and then in his mercy. And it is only out of the genuine fear of God, choosing to recognize the holiness of God, that we can possibly recognize how great his mercy is to us personally and thus how great his love is to us personally. And what happens when we see God in that way, the one true God? Our being, our soul, our spirit is like a clenched fist in rebellion against God. It's like a black hole in outer space that is trying to fill a void that was only made to find completeness and satisfaction in relationship with God. And so it can never fill that void, and so it continues to grasp. And the more it grasps, the more destructive it becomes, like a black hole in outer space pulling everything into itself. But the moment we choose to let go and let God have his way, we open up in the perception of the greatness of his love to us out of the mercy that we perceive from the purity of God's holiness towards us. And we cry out and surrender and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so now our hand is in a state of surrender like an open hand which represents a state of selflessness. The word of God says that boasting is excluded by the law of faith. We're not in a state of deceptive self-trust that brings worship and glory to ourselves at that point. Pride is broken. The shell of pride is broken like the shell of a seed that's been hard and could not sprout. But the circumstances of life have eroded that shell and the presence of God's spirit has melted it and brought it to the point where it's finally seen. There's no hope anywhere else. There's no meaning anywhere else. And cries out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, come into my heart. Make, I want to make you the Lord and the Savior of my life. Cleanse me of all my sin through your blood that was poured out of your love onto me. Cleanse my soul and make it clean and white as, white as snow from all sin. So then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with our spirit and soul in that state of selfless trust, which represents another hand coming to rest against the first open hand, forming two hands of prayer, which represent also a new divine seed, the new nature. And that is what it means to be born again. Now the Spirit of God is dwelling with your soul and spirit in a state of selfless trust, which is a new nature, which is described in 1 John when it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
So now here we have a relationship which is described in Galatians when it says faith works by love. There's the response of faith to perceiving the true being of God's love in his holiness and in his mercy. So love is seen and recognized out of the fear of God which bursts the response of faith, which brings forth the indwelling of God's presence to dwell after Christ has died, indwell our soul and spirit. Before Christ has died, died, dwelt with the soul and spirit in a new divine nature that was still there and has been since the time of Adam and Eve. And it's very clear from Galatians that this gospel was preached from the very beginning, as Paul clearly describes it was. People were born again from the very time of Adam and Eve. Enoch had such a close relationship of intimacy with God in the pre-flood world that he was translated into the very presence of God somewhere around 300 some odd years old. And in this passage of Scripture, there needs to be an understanding of what it means to be in holiness. Once we've seen who God is, it sets us free from grasping after the deceptions of things that are delusional because they never satisfy and have corruption. They are the baits of temporal things that can be used by greater powers to manipulate pe people's lives in a path that is destructive and that brings them into bondage because they're being, being controlled by those elements that do not have their highest good in mind. Only God has our highest good in mind. To put identity in things that are temporal and put our life's energy and focus in those things, whether it's our wife or our family or anything else, when those things crumble, we will tend to crumble with it. For we have lost sight of our true life source, who is the source of those blessings, and have made those things an idol that controls our lives, that can be used by the powers of darkness to lead us in a direction that is not unto life. Genuine love for our family comes when we know a genuine relationship with God. because we see the greatness of his love that requires judgment and yet is merciful to us to forgive us and to bring us into communion with him to be his children. There's a verse in the scripture that says, if you continue in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There is the initial conversion and being birthed in you of the Spirit of God that I've just described. But it is an ongoing process because the word of God makes it clear. It says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That requires that we abide in God. It requires that we make choices of discipline to seek God. If you truly love someone, you spend time with them and then you grow in your relationship with that person because you choose to invest your life in them instead of the temporal delusional things that can be used as bait to manipulate our lives 
in a path that is to our detriment and everlasting destruction. God is calling us as his people to have a life of prayer, to seek him. And then as there's this continuance, the things that we tend to be deceived by and want to grasp onto still fall off the more we learn to seek him in prayer and to abide him in a life of prayer. Those things fall off and we come into a greater and greater awareness of our relationship with God that is pure. So our choices are pure. They are not choices that are self-seeking to our own destruction. And so we enter into a life that is in conformity to the holiness of God, which is the integrity of God's being of love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love. And the more we are in conformity to the being of God, the more we ascend into the government of God and the more God indwells our being in a greater fullness and a greater power and authority. So in this passage of scripture, it says, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah, meditate on this. So it's saying the the generation that is truly seeking God is the generation that loves holiness, that receives the holiness of God's judgment in their lives recognizes it, repents, receives his mercy, and grows in it into a life of holiness. That is the generation that is truly seeking God, that's seeking the very face of God, that his face would shine upon him, as I described the atheist that saw the very presence of God when he died and was in the presence of God in heaven. And he saw galaxies coming out of his mouth and being created in the universe out of such a glory and presence of his love. And we seek the face of God to shine upon us because we delight to please him, to deny ourselves of those temporal delusions that would hold us in captivity and chains. And we delight As King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. says we're to worship God in the beauty of holiness. You see, it is out of the holiness of God that there is genuine wholeness in our being. It is out of the holiness of God that God manifests ultimate wholeness. And it is out of the wholeness that there is ultimate beauty manifested. For God is the very source of beauty. He's the source of all that is good. For he is the very creator of a beautiful universe. 
All that is distorted and ugly comes from the choices of his creation in rebellion against him. But God requires judgment upon that rebellion. And so we see the consequences of that ugliness because of separation from the love of God in distortion, in torment, in suffering, and eternal hell. God created his creation and us in particular as human beings to become his corporate bride. And those that choose to rebel against his love and be their own God are choosing to cut themselves off from the very source of wholeness and beauty and life. And all that's left is the very opposite, which is hell. And those that have seen hell in the other dimension say the torment is, goes on forever and it is beyond the worst kind of torment possibly to experience in this physical realm. I can't fathom that with my natural mind. But is that because of God? No, that is because of choosing of one's own free will to harden one's heart ultimately against God's mercy and choose to worship evil instead, which is total destructiveness and corruptibility. Then, of course, because it's out of harmony, with the source of love, is filled with the opposite, torment. Yes, God is the ultimate beauty, for he is the very source of all beauty and of all wholeness, which comes out of his holiness. And the more we learn to delight in letting go of the things that we tend to be deceived by and to cleave to God for who he is, the more we will know the truth that will set us free and bring us into that wholeness that manifests a true beauty within our being that swallows up corruptibility, swallows up distortion and evil. In this passage of Scripture, Starting in verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. That speaks of the door of our heart, being lifted up from the vanities of this world to behold the beauty of God. It says in, what is it, in Colossians, it says, Set your affections on things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Maybe I can find that passage quickly and just read it to you. I believe it's Colossians. I'll take a chance at just seeing if I can find it. It might be uh, Colossians chapter 2 or something. We'll just take a chance. If I don't get it, that's fine. Or it might be in Ephesians. I'm not sure. But I know the verse. It says that we're to set our affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's not worth me trying to find that passage. And it says, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. So the more we dwell on those things that are beautiful, which is God, in his holiness, the more we are transfigured into that place of wholeness and relationship with God. In fact, it's clearly described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last few verses. And I just 
go there right now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in the last few verses. And it says this. It says, nevertheless, when it, which is speaking of the heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's true freedom. Freedom is not found in allowing things in our lives to manipulate us and control us because we're seeking fulfillment in those things which are a lie. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it says we behold the face of God. And how do we behold the face of God? By a deep turning in the heart that comes out of the fear of God through learning to wait on God, through learning to spend quality time in prayer and in the meditation of his word, the Bible. Our heart opens up to who God is. Instead of running away from the reality of who God is in his holiness, and we begin to experience a genuine humility that breaks the hardness in our being, which is like an atom that has electrons spitting around it that form a hard shell. What will break that hard shell? It is the ultimate. It is a negative and a positive. And when there's a negative and positive, those electrons are broken from their hard shell, and there's the flow of life and electricity. Likewise, when we perceive the ultimate negative of this universe, which is really an ultimate positive, which is the ultimate purity of God's love, from which springs the ultimate positive, which is the symbol of the cross in the extension of God's mercy through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, there is the breaking of the shell of our heart of hardness. And that happens as we have a life of prayer and we learn to reciprocate out of appreciation and thankfulness God's atoning work in his son Jesus Christ on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. believe that's enough for preaching this message. I'm just going to go back to Psalm 24 a little bit here and continue with that just a bit. Psalm 24. Just going there now. I have shared basically what's in this passage. We are to lift up as our, as individuals our heads, the heads of our heart, the gates of our heart. And corporately, we will do this as the bride of Christ and the King of glory will come to dwell in our midst corporately as well. And I need to share about this corporately. It's very important. We are living in a very crucial time, especially in the United States and North America where the church has not yet repented of worshiping the gods of amusement. They spend hours watching sports and they totally justify it and condone it. The word of God commands us to redeem the time because the days are evil. 
Not to be caught up with these things that would desensitize our lives with a bunch of idleness. Especially when there's multitudes around us that are perishing and in darkness. The churches are filled with adultery because people are filled with these loves. These loves for the world, they do not hardly spend any time seeking God. God is calling his people to repent of these things and to come forth to be his corporate bride. We need to repent of the idols that have robbed us from relationship with God, whatever they be, whether they are pursuing materialism or pursuing pleasures or pursuing amusements. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Ezekiel, was abundance of bread and pride and idleness. People complain about so few people in the prayer meetings. Make your church service a prayer meeting. Christ said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It is when the leadership gets on their faces before God and and calls everyone else to do that. And we learn to be in utter awe of who God is and sensitized to him walking in our presence so that there's a true breaking up of the fallow ground and the shell of hardness in our lives. The presence of God will come down and we will be filled with his love and baptized with his love that will overflow so that we are not divisive. This will break the spirit of control and leadership that wants to keep things in their own comfort zone of order. Instead of letting the members of the body spring forth in the gifts of the spirit and facilitating that. Paul the apostle said, that more abundant honor comes on the part that lacks that there should be no schism in the body. And this can only happen as there is a repentance from control that allows the gifts of the Spirit to function in assembly so that the presence of God's gifting can come on those that are less attractive to humble those that tend to be looked up to. So that pride, which is the source of contention, according to Proverbs, for Proverbs it says contention or division comes by pride. And so love begins to overtake us. And instead of seeing the faults in one another, there's a love to look past those faults and to humble ourselves before one another and as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God. And even when the other person is more at fault, to go to them and ask for forgiveness for the things in our lives that have made them offensive towards us. And it is this attitude of clothing ourselves with humility out of the fear of God because we see who God is and his mercy to us and his love to us that causes us to be filled with love and forgiveness to others and to overcome the divisions of denominationalism, of control. It is then that a new order comes into the body of Christ and the churches that are denominations cast off their denominationalism and the true unity comes. God is calling us to come forth. As it says in the word of God, we are being built together as living stones for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. We need to allow a unity to come out of becoming his house of prayer, out of the fear of God, 
that causes a baptism in his love, that unifies us under his headship and his order, so that the fullness of his glory can come to dwell within our midst, so that as it says here in Psalms 24, the one that will dwell in our midst will be the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And when he dwells within us as an habitation through the Spirit corporately, and we become his corporate bride without spot or wrinkle, the mighty power and authority of God will be in our midst. And it very, very clearly makes it clear in that verse when it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what all beyond what we can ask or think according to his power that works in us. And the context of that verse is in Ephesians is talking about coming into unity with one another under the headship of Christ. And it is then that there is the indwelling of God's power and glory that is a beachhead that comes down into our community, into our city, that allows that city and community to be taken for God. And as we do that in each city in our nation, we will take our nation for God back. But if we do not, and if we do not repent, then the judgments of God will be severe, as indicated by prophets such as Henry Groover and others, of what will happen. May we be those that are ready in this hour to reap the harvest and to become his bride ready for his coming. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to sharing again.